Welcome back to Hunger for Wholeness, a podcast from the Center for Christogenesis. I'm your host, Robert Nicastro. Today, Ilya and I speak with ecumenical teacher Richard Rohr. To open up this episode, we reflect on Richard's influences, legacy, and some of his more inspirational work. begin, I remember when I visited you, you told me how you began in the charismatic movement. And I've often wondered, you know, that breath of the Holy Spirit in your life and the way your journey has unfolded and the tremendous contribution you've made to the church and the world today in terms of spirituality. So I hope so. Thank you. Oh, yeah, I'm sure of it. I'm wondering, you know, does that charismatic spirit, you know, that you initially we're part of, that charismatic renewal. Has that always stayed with you in some way? Yes, and I think so. I wouldn't want to say I started with it. I started with Franciscanism, really. The charismatic came in much later, but was a significant part. And it answered your question. In many ways, it has stayed with me, particularly my ability to trust and admire the experiential as opposed to just the school learning, which I was given plenty of, and it held me. And I see it in seeing the difference from a lot of Catholics, a lot of Christians, who don't seem to even trust the experiential. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, they're convinced it's heresy. Exactly, but you know, Richard, your experience is deeply Franciscan, right? Because Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, he was very charismatic himself. The Holy Spirit plays a, a large role in his writings, actually. He speaks about the Spirit of the Lord frequently. So that idea of the Spirit being Spirit-filled, experiential, you know, the energy of matter, so to speak, you know, was really... Very good, yes. Yeah, so I would say you're a bona fide Franciscan for sure. <laughs> I'll take that. Thank you. You know, maybe you could talk a little bit about that relationship between the spirit and the growth of the Center for Action and Contemplation. You know, it began as an initial inspiration for, I guess, a, a more centered, a contemplative center that could animate our actions in the world, which, again, I think is very Franciscan in terms of the Martha Mary, you know, that Francis himself put about. Well, I could definitely say we're 35 years old now, and these 35 years have been much more an allowing, a recognizing, than a doing and a making. (laughs) And I know it's a cliche at this point, but... I mean it sincerely. If I would try, I'm not saying I've succeeded, but I would try to keep out of the way and just recognize the open doors. It kept happening. And uh, still, to my amazement, I didn't make it happen. I know that. I didn't make it happen. I see young zealots, and I wish I still had that zealotry. I, I don't, honestly. I feel, my, you're trying so hard to be a success or to be a name or yeah. to be recognized. And uh, I, by the grace of God, I guess, I never really have that. Right. I have a lot of capital sins, but ambition isn't one of them. 
I never yeah. tried that hard. Yeah, I understand. It's like it's like what St. Paul said, you know, like someone planted the seeds and someone else, you know, watered the ground. Very good. Very good. Yeah. So I think that's it. We're kind of like seedlings, you know, and maybe we, other people help us water the seeds that we're planting, you know, in our lives, in the world. And then, but that. Wonderful. Yeah. Love makes these things grow. So, yeah, let's not get in the way of what the way is in terms of. Well put. Yeah. What the way is. Yeah. We can only know in parts at any one point. Yeah. We, we do see dimly. You know? Yeah, yeah. And then if you wait for the total knowing or certitude, and the, the people who hate me the most, and there's plenty of them. Oh, yeah. It's because I don't claim to be certain about it the way they are, at least. Yeah, they're in the wrong religion. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's delightful to talk to someone who understands. Oh, God. Robert does too here. Oh, yeah. We completely. We're on the same page here, Richard, believe me. All the great, you know, people who followed this path, they were always more or less, you know, kind of stumbling in the dark. Yes. Should I do this? Should I, you know, where is God calling me? You know, is this the right way? So that's what faith is about, right? It's trust that there's a power here that's pulling us. It's luring us. And we're just responding to that lure, you know, that power within us. If only we'd more translated it trust, trust, as you just put it, instead of belief. Yes, trust. Believing thing. Trust requires a wholehearted commitment of some sort. You know, it means it's more than belief. That's right. That, you know, no matter what happens, you know, the good will prevail of some sort, or God will see these things. Of some sort. It's not often the first good we wanted or suspected. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Most of life, if we think it's going to happen according to the way we have it planned, <laughs> it will be a failure. You know, it never works out according to our plans. But that, that not that the beauty of God? It's all about surprise. It's all about adventure. I and mean, this is a God of adventure, you know? This is a God who doesn't like the status quo, you know? Just look at the whole world of evolution. It's and just, how do we make God into that, you know? Yeah, Just look at the Webb telescope. Yeah, right. <laughs> so amazing. I'm always sad for God that we've kind of reduced God to like a little pussycat we put in our laps. <laughs> you know, we want to control this little, you know, this little creature. And God is like, oh, my God, these people are <laughs> lost it. So you've done some amazing work over the years. What do you think is your greatest contribution during your lifetime? I mean, that's a big question. Yeah. I I'm still too close to it. Yeah. I mean, there's areas where I saw most immediate fruit, like in the men's initiation rites. Those were life-changing immediately for a whole bunch of men, but time will prove if they last. They're still giving them in about 13 places around the world, but it's, the numbers are huge, but they're still good numbers. I often felt the 10-piece said I made on Paul was one of my better ones, I thought. And, and yet it's never been 
translated into a book. Most people, oh, that's nice. They aren't asking the same questions. Yeah. Well, was it asking? You know? Yeah. So I don't know beyond that, which is the biggest selling of my books is falling upward. Yeah. I want to talk about that. Yeah. And right behind it is the immortal, uh, universal Christ. Yeah, I want to talk about that one, too. Yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Beyond that, and I don't know, it's anybody's gift. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, they're all great works, honestly, Richard. But I want to talk a little bit about the universal Christ because... Oh, good. Well, we're just celebrating Easter, you know, and I think there's so many different understandings, I think. I mean, people have a variety of understanding of who... Jesus the Christ is, first of all, it's usually Jesus Christ, and I, I'm not sure how people yes. think of that many times now. Christ is not Jesus's last name. Last name. <laughs> Although I do think there's a whole group out there who might think that, you know, he's the great exception to all things. But I think that the, the notion of the universal Christ is the most hopeful one. You know, that we're not just a random universe. Uh, we're not just hurtling into a blind future. That, you know, we have from the very beginning, we have a, a purpose. You know, we have an aim in our Franciscan, you know, from a Franciscan perspective. Christ is first in God's intention to love. You know, so this whole big bang universe, you know, is divine love incarnating throughout every aspect of unfolding physical life. Tell me what your greatest insight on the universal Christ is. I mean, you know, you started to say it a few moments ago. He's not the great exception, which we tried to prove, but he's the great model. Yes. The exemplar. That changes immensely, you know, instead of trying to prove our Christ is unlike anybody else. Right. No, he's what we're all becoming. That's a very different pathway. Yes. And of course, we made the cross into a problem-solving event, a utilitarian event for a problem that we largely created, this preoccupation with sin. I mean, I believe there is such thing as sin, but... What we did with it is just... It's weighed us down considerably, I think, the doctor. That's right. We think that's our problem, we clergy anyway, to solve the problem of sin. Somebody called it sin management. Our job is to help you manage your sinful life. Yes. If that is our job, it's I'm getting out. It's such a boring job. Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, who thinks you can do it even? I completely agree. I mean, sin management, I mean, Spain is very self-focused, you know. That's right, that's right. And problem-oriented, not oriented toward all our wonder, our mystery, our love. No. Problem. Because it's very scrupulous. You know, they're constantly examining their every move and, you know, is God going to you know, condemn me, and will I go to hell? And, oh, my Lord, have mercy on me. <laughs> you want to say to people, chill out, God's fine, you know? <laughs> Relax. You know, it's an unfinished universe, you know, and you're unfinished as a person, so. Yes. Look at it as maybe a growth, you know, which kind of goes into your falling upwards idea. 
right? Well, it sure does, yes. And uh, that this growth is in many ways, not unreal, but real, unlimited. And it has to do with greater and greater harmony, greater and greater synthesis, yeah. greater and greater ability to, to deal with paradox, contradiction, mystery. That seems endless. And yet I, I gave priests and nuns retreats for 50 years all over the world. Wow. And there are some in every group who, who get it. But I have to say they're the minority. I, really? I'm not trying to be cynical. Oh, no. I'm not trying to be negative, but most don't enjoy that. And it isn't enjoying. Yeah. They keep focused on solving the problem. You know, I've wondered, Richard, sometimes we've told this story of original sin for so long, and we have prayers and songs and art that kind of all reinforce the fallenness, the Adam and Eve myth. Yes. You know, the fallenness. Yes. We're fragile. We stand under the cross, you know, kind of in that Lutheran sense. And I think the brain is being conditioned by original sin. You know, the West, certainly the Western mind. Wow. And I think part of the difficulty is how do you rewire the brain? In other words, how do we get those circuits to, you know, to rewire and to in a new direction? That, you know, first of all, there is no fall in terms of biology. I mean, you, you can't place a fall within the biological realm of things. It just doesn't work. There was no single couple you know, as far as we can know archaeologically and biologically. And and genetics just doesn't work that way anyway. So why do we want to hold on to fabrications, basically? I mean, ideas, when I say fabrications, they have no sound scientific evidence. There's There's no empirical evidence for holding these ideas. They're myths, they're stories. And I understand the value of a story. Right, we need yes, yes. But we can tell ourselves a new story as well. You know, a story where, which I like the idea of falling upwards. I think someone, maybe it was Ken Wilbur or something, speaking about original sin is coming. You know, when we come into more complex levels of thinking, we've also bear the responsibility of more complex levels of thinking, and so we can choose to act in a benevolent way, or we can choose against someone. But I don't know, Richard, the more I think about it, I think we humans are, we give ourselves too much credit. Wow. Good way to put it, you know. We think we're really special. Even though everything is all about us, we also have this idea that we're we're image of God. So we have these two things going on, and we think we're, we're really a special creature. And I, I think we're just part of the animal kingdom, you know, striving. We're called to be human. I'm not sure we always are human. We get there. You look at our politics of educated men. And I mean, I'm not trying to be unfair, but it's infantile. Young, it's, why would anybody take it seriously? 
I don't know, but it's rather scary because our lives are literally, you know, in the hands of, you know, this, these kind of conflicted parties. I mean, yeah, yeah, there are choices being made for us in some ways, policies. So I think the, the problem of original sin is that it, it keeps us down. Like it's having like a paperweight, you know, giant weight over us. Yeah, yeah. Can't breathe freely. Problem that's never fully solved. They don't let it be solved. And, and you listen to much preaching, not that I hear much anymore, but uh, it's there to convince you of your inferiority, your problem that you have. Yeah, that we're weak and we're fallen and we are, you know. And yet the things we learn, to use the old phrase, at our mother's knee. It's like the imprinting of a duck. The first person they see, you know, they follow forever. Well, things mommy and daddy told us, or authority figures, when we were little, it's an act of God to undo them or not overreact against them. Right, right. One or the other. I mean, if I wouldn't have left Kansas and joined the Franciscans, Yes, Robert, I, I left Kansas. <laughs> That's where I grew up. I wonder, I'm sure I would have done the same thing uh, if I hadn't been exposed. I'm 80 now. Yeah. My age grew. There was nothing too exciting happening in my teen years. It only began in my college years when Vatican II and American progressive thinking began. Now, most of us were able to begin to think freely. And by free thinking, I don't mean what most people think. Right. I, yeah, you know, I mean thinking with looking for creative patterns. Yeah. Looking for patterns that are always true. And uh, I'm sort of obsessed with that. I'm the other extreme. If I can't find the pattern, I'm not sure God is doing it. Because God operates in ways that are universal. Yeah. So you keep seeing the, there it is, there it is, there it is again. If our focus on sin is a distraction, how do we listen and watch for the patterns of the universal Christ in creation? Next, we discuss indigenous spiritualities the power of symbols, and the importance of the experiential for contemporary Christian renewal. I went to the Indian dances yesterday morning for Easter. The Pueblos dance on Easter Sunday in the all morning. And to watch these lines, uniform dancers, just doing it, it's almost an endurance contest, but doing it with such joy and such expectation. I, I said, whatever's happening there, we were right to say it was pagan religion. Uh, these people were in touch with universal patterns, and they knew how to celebrate and Broadly enough, that they knew how to integrate the Christian feast of Easter 
and they're dancing for four days now. Wow. Most Christians think Easter is over. Easter's going to last till Wednesday out here. It's wonderful. It's like Christmas, you know, on December 26th, the trees are down and the baby. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah. No, the richness of other traditions, the indigenous uh, spiritualities, so many, you know, that we have as we try to colonize and, you know, westernize. Yeah. We flattened out, you know, the richness of their contribution to the human, human community and the human spirit. It's just, it's unbelievable. That might be part of original sin, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love the predominance of natural symbols, both in what they're wearing and what the old men are chanting. It's all about the wind is blowing, the water is flowing. And to us, with our dogma, it sounds, oh, that's harmless. Well, really, and I don't need to tell you, it really isn't. Man, yeah. The wind is blowing, the water is flowing again and again. It teaches you what to pay attention to. Exactly, yeah. And where the sacred is found. And uh, it brings me to tears every time I go to the Indian dances. Wow. And they're still doing it on the same spot they did it when we came here. Wow. 500 years ago. Yeah, Same but, spot. Wow. It's not done for the tourists. No. That's really meaningful, you know. There's something about that, that, you know, carrying on this tradition year after year. Yeah. That is so outside the, the scope of consumerism and efficiency and technology and that deep embeddedness, you know, with the earth, that, that spiritual weaving you know, with the earth and the wind and the sun and the clouds. And that's the cosmic Christ. <laughs> of course. Yeah. In its most evident and simple form. to me we're mentioning the beauty of the symbols and Christianity is a religion of marvelous marvelous symbolism the problem is we've never taught our people how to think symbolically no in order to no. symbolism for today and it seems like both your work and Ilya's work does that so I'm wondering how do you see your work participating in the renewal of Christian symbolism going forward my that's a good observation in fact, I'd go so far, Robert, as to say, at least when I've told some people, it's a symbol. They think that's a put-down. Right. <laughs> I don't know if you were forced to study Greek like I was, but symbolon is the throwing together of things. And uh, symbolon, uh, we don't know how to throw together things. Our work has been mainly analyzing them, taking them apart. So when you say it's a symbol, they think you're saying just a symbol. When in fact a symbol is a wholeness that finds its manifestation in many places. But I, I so agree with what you're saying. And that's why poets are often the mystics, because they're looking for the symbol. 
<laughs> and it leads you to, a, it can, it often does, lead you to a mystical awareness. I'm sure you both heard the poetry of Mary Oliver. I think in Christian circles that I listen to anyway, she's more quoted today than Teresa of Avila. And I'm a Teresa of Avila fan, but she's found a way to point to the soul in ways that Teresa did in the 16th century and in ways that we don't resist, who we're attracted to. So um, we got our work cut out for us, how we re-interest people. You know, my biggest demographic right now, I'm told, is former evangelicals. And when they, in our school, it's true too. They tend to be very bright, but uh, they've come to this recognition of symbol. And first of all, Catholicism starts to attract them, but then they see the way we're living and they get unattracted. And uh, then the contemplative uh, begins to attract them. So I'm amazed these bright evangelical kids who fill most of our classes. They, they love the symbolic, and it was utterly torn away from them in their exegesis, if you want to call it that. It wasn't even allowed. Uh, Richard, do you think science, bringing science and faith together, could help in that renewal of the symbolic imagination? It ironically does. You know, when we went through the pandemic, I think a lot of us learned that, that we found it was religious people rejecting science to their own death, so in love with ideas more than reality, that they, they fought a crusade against vaccinations? Come on. I'm finding just in the last four or five years, for a whole set of people, Science has come to mean reality in a very good way. Yeah. Not fabrications of reality, but just workable reality. And people who rely on the evidence, that doesn't need to be in contradiction to belief, as we were taught it. Right. It's back to the experiential again. I don't know if you've been here, uh, Elia, when... I taught the living school, but we have what we call in our epistemology the tricycle theory. I've been using it for some years now. There's three wheels to our theory of knowledge. The front wheel is experience. The two back wheels are scripture and tradition. And uh, see, the Protestants were never given that. Once we got into this sola scriptura thing, that Luther thought he was saving us with. And Luther said some fine things, not trying to be anti-Luther. Yeah. But uh, once you say sola, only, Scripture, you set up a whole religion for dualistic thinking. Only, only. Yeah. Yeah. They did us a great disservice. So so I actually insist now that, that it's the front wheel. Until you've had some experience, that brings you to awe and wonder and surrender and trust. 
mix all four of those together in a way. I don't think you do much good with scripture or tradition. You call things tradition that are barely so, you know? Yeah, no. And you quote things in scripture that aren't worth quoting. This concludes the first part of our conversation with Richard Rohr. Next week, we dig deeper into our experience of the transcendent and the challenge of truth. A special thanks to our partners at the Fetzer Institute and our team at the Center for Christogenesis. I'm Robert Nicastro. Thanks for listening.